Today I want to look with you at Genesis chapter 9 and verse 18 down to 29. When I preached on this passage around 10 years ago, I called it the backsliding of Noah. And when I prepared it this time differently, I'm not so sure I would do that at all. Noah was just like us. We are all backsliders. In case you get offended by that, I wouldn't be the first person who's been offended by that statement. I remember one time uh, making a statement similar to that, and a girl came to see me afterwards, and she says, How dare you? How dare you call me a backslider? I'm living with the Lord. Living right before God. So I thought I'd do some research. And since I was going to be doing this at Temple Patrick, I thought I'd best find a Baptist who agrees with me. That's a good tactic, isn't it? Search the internet until you find a Baptist that agrees with you. There's bound to be one somewhere. And I came up with one, Stuart Elliott. Stuart Elliott wrote, uh, uh, preached a sermon, oh, I don't know, it must have been about 20 years ago, but it's on the internet, called We Are All Backsliders. Look it up, it's really good. I listened to it. Stuart Elliott makes a point that a backslider is a genuine Christian. If you're not living with the Lord, then you can't be a backslider. If you've never been born again, if you've never known God's grace, then you have nothing to backslide from. You're a sinner who needs to be saved. So Ollie points out that a backslider is a genuine Christian, a real believer in Jesus who is not living the way they should. They are not living a life that is properly dealing with the mortification of sin in their lives. Remember that all of us are sinners. Being a Christian doesn't stop you from sinning. It makes you regret your sin. It makes you not want to sin. But when you do sin, you grieve over it and you mourn about it and you bring it before the Lord and you repent of it and you find forgiveness in it. A backslider is someone who is not properly dealing with the mortification of sin in their own lives. A Christian who has yielded to temptation. And to some extent, that is all of us. Because none of us have properly dealt with the mortification of sin in our lives the way that we ought. So just in case you're wondering what a backslider looks like, I have brought you a visual aid. And he's standing right in front of you. There's quite a few more of us. John dealt with this problem in 1 John chapter 1. He writes to us so that we might not sin. And then he says, but when we do sin, we must recognize that sin and repent of it and turn from it. And when we do sin as we will, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I'll leave that one hanging for now. 
And notice in that text that only Jesus is described as the righteous. The reason why we can describe ourselves honestly as backsliders is because there is none righteous except him. We are only clothed in his righteousness. We're not alone in our backsliding. Sure we're not. Consider those Reformation heroes. Luther is accused of being a racist. Luther's language was sometimes impolite, to say the least, especially when it came to talking about the Pope. Luther didn't have much time for the Pope, and he didn't afford him any graciousness in his language. Zwingli was a warrior. Calvin should have pleaded for the life of Servetus. Knox assented to the death of an archbishop. All of those men were deeply flawed. How do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of the fact that Noah was an heir of righteousness, which is by faith? And then read the events of chapter 9, verse 20 to 29. How do we make sense of that? How would an heir of the righteousness, which is by faith, fall into the trap that Noah fell into? See, the Bible never, ever paints gloss over its characters. David, you remember, was an adulterer and a manipulative liar and a man involved in a plot to murder. Samson was a man of unrestrained passion that ruled his head and brought about his downfall. Rahab was a harlot. And if I can say it respectfully, Noah was a drunk. So, do I stand in condemnation of Noah? And do I say, as some have done, you know, the problem with Noah is he started out well, but he backslid at the end. Or do I look at Noah and say, Noah is like me to some extent, and like everybody here. An honest, true heir of righteousness who has simply not adequately dealt with the mortification of sin in our own bodies because of our human weakness. Let's look at Noah. Let's look, first of all, at Noah's calling. Now, Noah had spent most of his life as a shipbuilder, working in the yard, as we say in Belfast. I don't know too many shipyard workers who later in their life turned their hand to farming. I don't know any wee men from East Belfast who got to 65 and decided that they were going to go out into the country and plant vineyards, not that that would be appropriate in Northern Ireland. So I wonder if before Noah had been called to preach and to build the ark, had he perhaps been a farmer? He returns to the task in verse 20. He says, Noah began to be an husbandman and he planted a vineyard. You see, sometimes that happens. Sometimes ministries are for a lifetime. But sometimes God just simply calls a man and calls a woman, perhaps into missionary service, perhaps into something overseas, to work for him for a period of time. And then later in life, when the course of that ministry has run, he will 
bring them back into their original uh, calling and occupation so that they will serve God doing what they were trained to do. Noah's, of course, Noah's task is a very necessary task. The world has been destroyed. The earth has been saturated and now it's dry again. Now is the time to replant and now is the time to grow again. The world needs a farmer right now. In earlier days, the world needed a preacher. Right now it needs a farmer. And so Noah planted a vineyard. Became his occupation. Now, what do we think about Christian occupations? I wonder, is planting a vineyard a suitable job for a believer? I always worry about these things. Christian's occupation should always be an occupation that brings glory to God, shouldn't it? We know that we always have assumed, whenever I was a young Christian, we always knew that when we were choosing our career choices, that we could never be a publican working in a pub and be a Christian. We could never be, in our day, uh, a worker in a cinema. There was a whole lot of jobs that we would never have thought of going into. But nowadays, the distinctions have become blurred. These days, can a Christian be a registrar anymore? You're a Christian teenager. You're looking at your course ahead for life. You're trying to choose your occupation. You're looking at perhaps civil service and thinking, well, what if I'm placed in the registrar's office, local government? A policeman? What if you're asked to walk and parade in the gay pride parade? A baker? A wedding photographer? I remember a man who came to speak at our youth fellowship when I was a child who who had an international football career planned for him. He was playing for some team in Belfast called Linfield at the time. And um, he had been doing very well and had been marked out for great things. And he came to know Christ as his saviour. What was the first thing he did? He left the football aside. He came to tell us about it, why he'd done it. Why did he stop? Why did he not go on and be a great footballer, a great international athlete, and hold up his Christian testimony? He said, because I couldn't stand in the terraces and listen to the language that was being said, and how could I then play in the pitch? His career had to be abandoned. Now it is. Christians have to be so careful. And the Christian's occupation should always leave time for proper obedience to God. Some occupations are so demanding these days, aren't they? A worker sometimes can't get home in time to spend time being a parent and going to church and reading the scriptures and praying. You work all day and you work into the evening and you come home with your briefcase under your hand and you have more work to do and you flop down on the sofa at the end of the day and you fall asleep and you crawl into bed and you know that the next day will be the very same. The Christian's occupation has to be so carefully chosen and yet the choices for young believers are getting less and less. Christian's occupation must be a good reason to give thanks to God. For God has blessed us. Blessed us through our work. 
Christians' occupation must be a blessing to others as well. Being thankful, we must use the talents and the skills and the vocations and the callings and the abilities that God has given us to bless others as he has blessed us. Paul was a tent maker and he used that occupation to support his Christian ministry so that he would not be a burden to others. Noah's calling. Noah began to be a husbandman, and to some extent the source of his downfall was his occupation. How great is that temptation today? When we're thinking about the mortification of sin in the Christian life, how often does our occupation require us to blur the edges of ethics, to step over a line? As many as a man or a woman has had his Christian life destroyed by the job that he or she did. Noah's calling. Noah's calling led to Noah's curse. His business was expanding. He planted a vineyard, verse 20, and it came to the time for the harvesting of the grapes. And he went out into the field and he plucked the grapes and he brought them in and he put them into the wine press and he fermented them until they became wine. I don't know whether he did the traditional thing of stamping his feet into the wine, but the Bible doesn't tell us. We're not to speculate. Don't forget that um, the Bible has a lot to say about alcohol. Don't forget that grapes and wine are, in effect, a gift from God. They are very necessary in societies like ancient Israel. It was the only possible means of water purification. Paul urged Timothy, drink a little wine for the sake of your physical weakness, for your stomach's sake. At a wedding, Jesus turned water into wine. But the Bible is always consistent in that it is always against any form of drunkenness. So when the time came and the wine was fermented, Noah drank of the wine, verse 21, and was drunken. He drank beyond what was wise. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 21 and verse 34, we read these words. Be careful. Or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. You all got drunk. I don't know how that happened. Did he start to feel merry and lose his senses? Did he like to taste and just keep on drinking? Did he get melancholic? as alcohol often does, and just keep on drinking it? Did the gradual increase of alcohol make him oblivious to its effects? Why do people drink to access? It can be hard for some of us to understand. I have never been drunk in my life. I'm not saying that to boast. I'm just saying it's never happened. And for those of us who are not predisposed to drunkenness, 
We have to remember that every alcoholic that there ever was starts the downfall into alcoholism with one single glass. It's a salutary warning. Noah drank of his own wine. And he drank more than was what was wise. You see, the problem with being drunk is that you behave like a drunkard. And that's what Noah did. The verse goes on. He drank of the wine and was drunken and he was uncovered in his tent. What on earth was he playing at? There's one thing about drunkenness. Drunkenness always leads to shame. You see how sin progresses? If it's not quickly stamped out in the Christian's life, if it's not mortified quickly, if it's not recognized and 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 and, and repented of and turned from, it progresses. It doesn't stand still. Same with David. When David sinned with Bathsheba, there was the sin of lust and the sin of adultery and the sin of murder and the sin of complicity. And the sin just began to spread and began to get greater and began to involve more people and began to deepen in its effects. Noah behaved like a drunkard. He lay stark naked in his tent for drunkenness always leads to shame. Always. And in ancient Israel, nakedness is always shameful. I think it is today too. Just because our modern society has lost its moral compass doesn't mean that we should not think that Someone walking down the street in a state of undress is not shameful. How much do we say of that shameful behaviour? If you go down into Belfast on a Friday or a Saturday evening, go up around what they call the Golden Mile in Shaftesbury Square and that kind of area where all the nightclubs and the bars are and you go in the early hours of the morning, maybe one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning and you'll see young people coming out of those places and they will be coming out of nightclubs and they'll be reveling and they'll be singing and they'll be vomiting in the street and they'll be lying half naked in the gutters and the pavements of the towns and the cities. It's drunkenness and it leads to shame. Back in the 1970s, one of the jobs that I had on Friday evenings for a wee while was to stand outside the Helmsman Bar don't worry, I wasn't a bouncer. I was a policeman. My job was to stand outside the Helmsman Bar, along with others, because at about one o'clock in the morning, the doors would open, and everything that was in that place, a real despicable place, would burst out onto the street. All the drink was manifest. All the shame. All of the nakedness. People doing vile things. We used to have to stand there to prevent a breakdown of law and order. Drunkenness always leads to shame. And it leads to exposure. What was wrong with this man uh, seeing his father naked? It says in verse 21, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brethren without. Now, what was the problem there? What's wrong with that? 
many people see on people clothed. If you're a nurse, you see it all the time. You're caring for people. You'll see it all the time. Doctors, nurses, even just by accident, sometimes this happens. There must be something different here. There must be some reason why this has brought shame upon Noah and upon his son. Some preachers, some commentators, will tell us that this nakedness was no accident. They will say, perhaps, that Noah had his clothes deliberately removed by his son, and even worse, that his son had performed some form of vile assault upon his own father. Commentators note that his exposure caused harm to revile his father, to laugh at him, to scoff at him. He despises his father. I think that's the key of it. And harm. Verse 22, the father of Canaan saw the nakedness of his father and add to that sin gossip and told his two brethren without. Let's get a picture of what's happening here. Noah's lying drunk in his tent. The silly old man has taken all his clothes off and he's just flung himself into his bed and he's lying in a drunken stupor. And in comes his son. And what does he do? He begins to mock. He begins to despise his own father. He feels when it comes to the commandments. For the commandments tell us we are to honour our father and our mother. He did not honour his father. He despised him. And even worse than that, when having despised him in his heart and sinned before God, he walks straight out of the tent, he found his two brothers, and he says to him something along these lines, Would you look at what's lying in there? Our father's lying in there, drunk and naked and ashamed. He gossiped maliciously. Matthew Henry here comments, Noah was not only a good man, but he had been a good father to Ham. And this was a most base, disingenuous repayment to him for his tenderness. Ham is here called the father of Canaan, which indicates that he who was himself a father should have been more respectful to his own father. You see, Noah had preached the gospel to his children. In the time of God's judgment, they had been spared because of their godly upbringing. This man had much to be thankful for. His parents had been good to him. Now, in his father's time of lapse, he stands and he mocks him in front of others. After that drunkenness comes respect. For the reaction of Shem and Japheth is totally different, for they take a garment and they place it upon their shoulders and they walk backwards and they cover the nakedness of their father and their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. They would not look upon Noah. They wouldn't permit others to look upon him. In his shame, they put a blanket over the top of him. It's a mark of great respect. And that's what points out the actions of these two brothers and marks it as different from the actions of Ham. They're shielding him 
from ridicule. They're honoring their father. So Noah, who is an heir of righteousness, is lying in a tent in a drunken stupor. How will he ever recover? Well, we have Noah's calling, Noah's curse, and what I believe is Noah's cure. The cure of souls was a great phrase in Reformation days, entrusted to those who would look after churches, was to cure souls. Noah's soul was ready to be cured. Noah awoke to his foolishness and he saw what his younger son, verse 24, he knew what his younger son had done unto him. He recognized his foolishness. He must have a true believer always will eventually. The Bible tells us that when Noah recovered and he discovered what has been done to him in his state of inebriation, he prays. Here's the evidence of his prayer. Verse 26, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem and Canaan shall be his servant. If Noah had been still in his sins at that point, then that prayer would have gone unheard and gone unanswered. Having time for much more, you'll see something else if you get the notes. Because Noah then cursed Ham through his son Canaan. There's a reason for that. Let's remember though, when we think of Noah in this passage, and when we look at Noah's sin, and when we see Noah's drunkard, and drunkenness is sin, and sin spreads, when we see Noah as a sinner, we're to remember that we are sinners too. That we are charged the same as Noah was to consider the sinfulness in our own lives and to repent of it. To trust God for sanctification, for the mortification of sin. Nobody is perfect. No Christian has yet reached the state of sinless perfection. Least of all me, least of all you. To quote Stuart Elliot again, we are all backsliders. Not David, the man after God's own heart. Not the Apostle Paul who said, I am the chief of sinners. He did not say I was. Not Noah who got drunk. We look at the faults of others as we are right to do, for we are to be discerners of fruit, but we must always look at them through the eyes of those who are conscious of our own sinful disobedience and rebellion, our own shortfall in righteousness, and have pity on them and pray for them and forgive them as God has forgiven us. And as we examine our own lives to mark out our own backsliding condition and we confess it to the Lord, we know that all of our sins, past, present and future, were forgiven when Christ died for us on the cross. 